from the dead bodily. This morning we're going to read about that in John chapter 20. So follow with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 to set this uh, really in context. So follow with me. John 20 verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Father, this morning we praise you and we gather as those who have been redeemed, reconciled by your grace. And we thank you, Father, for the truth of our risen Savior. We thank you, Father, that that power, that same resurrection power is at work within us this morning. So, Father, we ask you to let that power flow through us freely, to draw our minds and our hearts towards you, and that we would be rekindled in our faith this morning. Grant these things, Father, we ask to your glory and that you would be known throughout all the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 
Pastor and author John Ortberg tells the story of a friend of his who many, many years ago had worked at the denominational office in Minnesota. And one of the jobs that he had was to travel to small rural communities where there were no churches to do funerals. So this man would go out with an undertaker and they would drive together in the undertaker's hearse. They would get to this small rural community and then conduct funerals as necessary. Now one time on their way back from one of these small communities, John's friend, who also happened to be named John, started to get real sleepy, real tired. And he thought, you know what, we're riding in a hearse, there's nothing in the back, so as weird as it is, he decided just to stretch out in the back of the hearse and grab a nap as they were driving home. Well, it just so happened as they were driving, the hearse needed gas. So they pulled into a gas station, and this was at the time where there were full-service gas stations. The attendant came out and started pumping gas and just out of curiosity kind of peeked through the window and saw a body lying in the back of this hearse. No casket, no anything, just a body. And of course, that kind of gave him the heebie-jeebies. But you can imagine how he felt when John noticed that the attendant was looking and decided to say hi to him and knocked on the window and waved at him. He said he had never seen anyone run as fast as that poor gas station attendant did. You can only imagine when you're expecting one thing and something else happens. That morning at the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other ladies who came to anoint the body of Jesus experienced something that they no way expected to happen. They went expecting to find the dead body of Jesus. They did not expect the stone to be rolled away. They did not expect the tomb to be empty. They did not expect to meet the risen Lord. Now, it's important to recognize that Mary and the others, they did not actually witness the resurrection itself. However, they were the first to see the empty tomb. And of course, the first thing she did was ran to see Simon and the other disciples. In fact, when you read this text, I was struck by how much running goes on in it. It's like the empty tomb set people off running. Mary runs to get Peter and the others. Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved run back to the tomb. And notice as they set out running, the two disciples, Peter and this other unnamed disciple, start going together. But Peter is outran. So we end up with three witnesses at the tomb. Mary, Simon Peter, and this unknown disciple. Three people who saw the empty tomb first trying to figure out exactly what happened. Peter is probably one of the best known of the disciples. However, it's interesting that in this narrative telling of the resurrection, Jesus doesn't really, I'm sorry, Peter really doesn't say much. In fact, for one who is often so bold to make declarations, Peter's silence is a little bit puzzling. In fact, nothing is recorded of Peter's response. Now, we know by reading ahead what happens a few days later in John 21. It records this face-to-face -face meeting with Peter and Jesus as Peter is reconciled to his Lord. But in the morning on the first day of the week, when Peter stood at the empty tomb staring at these grave clothes, we don't know what he did, what he said. 
Now recognize that it's dangerous to try to fill in the gaps. But I can't help but wonder. Was Peter standing there speechless trying to figure out why thieves would take the body? Or maybe Peter was processing the situation. If thieves didn't steal the body, because the question remained is, why would thieves take the grave clothes off the body? That doesn't make sense. So Peter could be processing this thinking, well, it doesn't make sense for them to steal the body. And Jesus wasn't buried with any riches. There was no gold to steal. So that could could mean he's alive. And at this moment, I wonder if Peter's soul wasn't conflicted. I wonder if at one moment Peter wasn't joyful and excited that Jesus is alive, but then at the same moment he thinks Jesus is alive. And I denied him three times. I denied the man who has the power to conquer death. And I wonder if it is possible that guilt and shame left Peter speechless and uncertain. If that is the case, we can certainly empathize with Peter. We can understand his dilemma. David Brooks, a columnist for the New York Times, has written about one of the dilemmas facing our culture today, that as the influence of religion is declining, our culture is not sure what to do with guilt anymore. It's clear that according to surveys and according to just looking around, we know that attendance is declining at churches. And we know that the impact Christianity has had upon our culture is starting to wane. And Brooks says that because of that, there's no clear rituals or framework to guide people in their quest for goodness. He says, even worse, there's a sense of guilt and sin that no longer makes sense to a people living in a universe where they don't understand divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. He says, quote, there is sin, but no formula for redemption. That could have been Peter's problem at the moment. I've gone too far. If he's alive, I can't face him. How can I look at the one I denied three times if he is alive and conquered death? And I wonder for some this morning if that's not the same issue. How can I face Jesus knowing what I've done? So we put on this, this face, this act that says everything is okay because we don't want to come face to face with the risen Lord and experience His grace. This morning I want to remind you that as, as Chris quoted earlier in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In a few weeks we'll be able to go in depth a little bit more as Peter faces Jesus. But I want you to know this morning, the risen Lord does not come pointing a finger at you but holding out a hand saying come to me Peter's not the only witness there at the tomb in verse 2 we see that the disciple the one whom Jesus loved also ran with Peter now the question has been asked for 2,000 years who is this disciple Verse 2, this one whom Jesus loved. 
Now, the majority view is that this disciple is John, the son of Zebedee. But this morning, I have to, to let you know very candidly that I stand in the minority on this. This may shock you, but I think the disciple whom Jesus loved is none other than Lazarus himself. And I want to show you why. And I'm not just doing this as an exercise in trivia to think what if, but I believe that if this is Lazarus, it adds some depth to what we read, not only throughout the Gospel of John, but in the case of the resurrection. We recognize that Lazarus, of course, is the one who was uh, dead and then buried. So who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Could he be Lazarus? There's a progression in the text regarding Lazarus, and it revolves around the phrase reclining at table. Now in 11.3, when Lazarus is ill, word is sent to Jesus. The man whom you, what, love is ill. To me, that's a clue in the text. The disciple whom Jesus loved, as he is known, well, we're told in verse 3 of chapter 11, the disciple whom you love is ill. Verse, chapter 12, verse 2, Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. In other words, this is probably just after he has been brought back from the dead, he's reclining at the table with Jesus. In chapter 13, verse 23, it says, the beloved disciple is reclining with Jesus. Now, you may think, well, it's nothing new for people to recline at table with Jesus, but the thing here is that there are only two uses in the Gospel of John of the word reclining. You read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, reclining is used 8, 9, 10, 11 times. In John, it's only used twice. And both times, I believe it's connected with Lazarus. I think this is a clue to say, this is whom the beloved, beloved disciple is. Now, I recognize that throughout church history, the beloved disciple has been identified as John. But I would like to point out that John, the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are anonymous. Nowhere is the author identified. So it's history that has told us that John is the author. Also, in the Gospel of John, the focus of the ministry of Jesus is Judea and Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on his Galilean ministry, which would make sense for fishermen who were from Galilee. But Lazarus lived in Bethany. Where is Bethany? Just outside of Jerusalem. That's where he lived. It would make sense that Lazarus would be intimately involved with the ministry of Jesus in and around Jerusalem. Furthermore, the Gospel of John tells us that the beloved disciple gained entrance for himself and Peter into the courtyard of the high priest. He was known to the high priest, which begs this question. If John is the author of the Gospel, if John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, how could a fisherman from Galilee know the high priest well enough to get in the house. We know that Lazarus and his family were people of means and influence. Because when Lazarus died, it says many of the Jews came out of Jerusalem to be there and to mourn him. He is referred to as the beloved disciple, not as a name that he gave himself, but as a name the believing community passed along to Lazarus in order to protect him. Why? He was a wanted man. 
When the religious leaders wanted to stop the spread of Jesus, they knew that Lazarus was a witness whose voice would be heard loud and clear. I mean, what do you say when someone says, um, pardon me, I was dead for four days and Jesus brought me back to life? That's a pretty difficult witness to silence. They wanted to kill Lazarus. So as a means of protecting him, the community that Lazarus influenced referred to him as the beloved disciple. Now, whether or not you agree with me, that's fine. I understand it's been debated, but just for a few moments... Think about if Lazarus is this beloved disciple. Think about it and read this passage thinking about that. For example, look at verse 5. This other disciple whom Jesus loved gets to the tomb first. And look what's emphasized. He stoops to look in, but he did not go in. Why is that detail included? I think if this is Lazarus, it makes perfect sense. After all, if you had been in a grave for four days, would you be quick to step back into one? I mean, talk about having PTSD, post-tomb syndrome. Lazarus would. Notice what else is pointed out. Look what it says he noticed. The linen cloths lying there. Now, we could say on one hand, well, of course, that's what he would notice first. But I would remind you, the only other time in the scripture that linen cloths are mentioned is in John chapter 11, verse 44. What was Lazarus wrapped in according to, to John eleven forty four? He was wrapped in linen cloths with a head cloth wrapped around him. And I would remind you that when Lazarus came out of the grave, he didn't come out on his own. He had to have someone unwrap him. In fact, Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. But now he looks and he sees that these linen cloths are laying there. He knows that if you're dead, you can't get out of them. So Jesus had to be working supernaturally to be free. So I think Lazarus starts putting two and two together. The tomb is empty. The linen cloths are free and gone. No one could have rolled the stone away on their own. So on Lazarus, it says what? Verse 9, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. Okay, Peter steps in. It's safe. There's someone to help get me out in, in worst case scenario. And what does happen? Lazarus sees and believes. But notice verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In many ways, verse 9 is a little bit of a rebuke. It's a little bit of a rebuke reminding us that they believed based on what they saw, but the scripture gives a greater promise to those who believe without seeing. John 20, verse 29, look at it. Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those happy, joyous, overflowing, are those who believe based on what they read in the Scripture. God is pleased and greatly glorified when we take Him at His word. The attitude of God said it, and that's enough for me, greatly honors Him. How much trouble do we cause ourselves when we simply refuse to take God at His word? You see, there comes a time when we must say, Lord, you are God and I believe what you have said, therefore I will stand upon it. You don't have to show me anything else, Lord. Your word's enough. See, the beloved disciple believed and that's good. 
But we are blessed if we take God at his word even without seeing. Now, Peter and the beloved disciple are powerful witnesses, no doubt. But they're not the main witness. The distinction of being the main witness to the the empty tomb belongs to someone who is very, very, quite frankly, shocking and surprising. Mary Magdalene. Look at the text and see how she is emphasized. Notice verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. She's referred to Mary throughout the text until you get to verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples. Verse 1, Mary Magdalene. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene. It's as if the author of this gospel wants us to recognize something. To recognize, one, the shocking nature of Mary being the first witness. Now, the other gospels tell us that other women went to the tomb with Mary. And that's accurate because notice in verse 2, when Mary runs to tell Peter and the other disciple, notice what she says at the end of verse 2. We do not know where they have laid him. So there were other women with Mary, but the author of this gospel is focusing upon Mary Magdalene for a reason. In fact, all four gospels give her a place of preeminence when it comes to sharing the news of the empty tomb. Now, I've said before, this would have been shocking. In fact, it leads to the veracity of this, this, this uh, re- the resurrection because women were not counted as valid witnesses in court. So if you were making this up, you would not choose a woman to be your primary witness. However, the Gospels tell us that it was Mary and the other women who were the first ones to testify of the empty tomb. Why? Why is it that Mary gains this place of preeminence? And it could be, I believe, because Mary is a picture of devotion and love. She's a picture of a faithful follower that we would do well to emulate. Now Magdalene is not her last name. We don't really know her last name. Mary was from a small town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. Therefore she is known as Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala. When we were first introduced to her, we are told that she is possessed by seven demons paints a picture of hopelessness. The demonic had hold of her life. She was a tortured prisoner until she met Jesus who sets the prisoners free. And with a word, this woman who was controlled by the devil now knows freedom. And in that freedom, she follows Jesus. There are four things I want us to take away from Mary Magdalene and her witness. The first is this. It reminds us that we are called to follow faithfully. Mary's commitment was not sporadic nor intermittent. I'd remind you that at the cross, we know that those who gathered there were Mary, the mother of Jesus, the beloved disciple, and Mary Magdalene. When you follow through and read through the Gospels, you'll find that Mary Magdalene, after her deliverance, is there frequently supporting the ministry of Jesus. She was consistent. Because she had been delivered, she was devoted. It's a type of commitment that is greatly needed today. 
When often our commitments are based upon how we feel or what is convenient at the moment, Mary shows us one who is committed no matter what to following her Lord because not only is she at the cross, she is among the first to go to the tomb. When the other disciples are hiding in fear, where is Mary? She is coming with one last act of devotion to her Lord whom she believes to be dead but is quickly surprised. You see, we need much more than involvement. The famed Football coach Lou Holtz once said, the kamikaze pilot who flew 50 missions was involved but not committed. We need commitment. It says, I will be involved, steady and consistently. We not only need to be reminded to follow faithfully, Mary teaches us that we need to learn to linger. There's a contrast set up between verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 is very terse, very sharp. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We don't know how Peter's responding. The disciple whom Jesus loved believes. But what do they do? They go back home. But notice verse 11, this hinge. But Mary stood weeping. And because she stood and lingered, she encountered something that the other disciples didn't. More to the point, she encountered someone that they didn't. I fear that our fast pace of living robs us of lingering with and knowing Jesus. One of the great disciplines we need to cultivate today is learning to linger to know the Lord. But there's something about busyness that makes us feel needed. We often heard the statement, don't just stand there, do something. I think sometimes we need the opposite. Don't just do something. Stand there. Because Mary stood there. Not wanting to leave. Committed, devoted. Even when it comes to reading the scripture. There are times that we need to take to linger, to know the Lord. There's a great difference between eating takeout in your car, driving down the road, and sitting down to a steak dinner and savoring it. In fact, there's a reason that you don't see drive-up steakhouses. You can eat something going down the road and get nourishment, but it's not usually good for you. We need times where we sit and we learn to linger. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. But quite frankly, how many of us are often still enough, long enough, to know that He's God? It's a discipline to slow down, to linger. Because when she lingered, she saw the supernatural and experienced it. She experienced the hope that we need, that grief will give way to joy. She sees two angels and they ask her a question. First question, woman, why are you weeping? Isn't it interesting that when she meets Jesus in verse 15, he asks the very same question, why are you weeping? In other words, it was as if, to use the words of Jesus, she's dancing to the wrong music. This is the time to be excited and joyful, and she is weeping. Now, it's often puzzled people in verse 14 why she didn't recognize Jesus. She didn't know that it was him. First, it's quite amazing that Mary has a discussion with angels and she doesn't show any shock. They've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've taken him. 
And when she sees Jesus, she doesn't recognize him. Well, on one level, there could be a supernatural act taking place. In the Gospel of Luke, when Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus start walking with Jesus, we are told they were kept from recognizing him. And that could be at work here. Or it could be very possible that it's just a simple reaction of grief. She wasn't expecting to see Jesus. She's weeping, she's crying, and so her first encounter with him, she wouldn't recognize him because she thinks he's dead. She's not there. But in a moment, when she hears Jesus call her name, verse 16, Mary, she turns and says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She heard her name and then she knew it was Jesus. This is a living illustration of what Jesus taught in John chapter 10. Jesus said, my sheep know my when she hears Mary she recognizes the tone she recognizes the sound of that voice and then her world that is full of grief is now transformed into joy it's no secret that our world today is full of grief and it is very easy to feel overwhelmed with that that's why this morning I ask you to linger and to hear Jesus calling your name and to know that all will be well You see, the resurrection of Jesus encompasses our hope. It is the truth of the gospel that he has risen from the dead. If he has not risen from the dead, we are still in our sins. And we are, according to Paul, of most men to be pitied. But what John is telling us, that in the resurrection of Jesus, there has been a fundamental change, not just in our lives when we encounter him, but to the universe where there is hope instead of grief. There is joy instead of depression. What does he say, for example, in verse 20, chapter, or, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 20? On the first day of the week, they came to the tomb. Why does he say the first day of the week? You could say, well, it's because it was Sunday, and that would be accurate. But the other gospels focus on the third day. I think John is continuing a theme that he began early, a theme that Jesus brings about new creation. How did John begin this gospel or how did the disciple begin this gospel? In the beginning was the word echoing Genesis 1. And what was the very first thing God created? Light. Now, notice the description in verse 1. They came to the tomb while it was still dark. They were still walking in the darkness of fallen creation. But in encountering the risen Lord, they encounter light. They encounter the goodness of Jesus. They encounter the hope that comes from the gospel. That he is recreating new things. And Mary experiences this. She reminds us that grief is temporary, but the joy that comes in the Lord is eternal. Because of that, we need to be about his business. Verses 17 through 18, this is what Mary models for us also. Be about his business. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. This is a case where I think we... In our zeal to find a deeper meaning at times can over-interpret. Some have taught that Jesus said, don't cling to me, don't touch me because I'm in that in-between state. I've risen from the dead, I've not yet gone to the Father. I don't think that's what this is saying at all. I think this is a very practical statement by Jesus. I think he's telling Mary, don't keep hugging me. I've not gone away yet. I've not ascended yet. 
Stop hugging me now and go tell the disciples I'm alive. They need to know. I think this is one of those instances where she is wanting to cling to him. And he says, I need you to go tell them, Mary. I need you to be about my business. Furthermore, it's emphasizing something else. This was not just a spiritual resurrection. You don't cling to a spirit. This is bodily. And that is so crucial. This reminds us that the hope of the gospel is not just some existence in, uh, in heaven where we're floating on a cloud with no body. It is a physical bodily resurrection where we will be renewed and remade. Where that which is buried immortal will be raised immortal. Where that which is buried corruptible will be raised incorruptible. And so Jesus says to Mary, I've not left yet. I'm going to ascend to the Father later on, but right now I need you to go and tell them. And look at the message she is to tell. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's the message. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be going to my Father and your Father. That's the language of adoption. The resurrection opens the gateway that we are adopted into the family of God. That we share a brotherhood with Jesus who is not only our Savior, but you could literally say our older brother. And then he says, what? To my God and to your God. That is the language of reconciliation. You understand that without the resurrection, we have no hope of being justified with God, being adopted into His family, and being reconciled to God. But in the resurrection, these things are brought to pass, that we are given a new relationship with Jesus. That is where we must follow the example of Mary and go and tell. There is a joy that should permeate our lives, that we go and we pass along the good news that He is risen. A poet by the name of Joseph Balel puts it like this. Let's celebrate Easter with the rite of laughter. Christ died and rose and lives. Let's laugh like a woman who holds her first baby. Our enemy death will soon be destroyed. Laugh like a man who does, finds he doesn't have cancer or he does and now there's a cure. Christ opened wide the door of heaven. Laugh like children at Disney World's gates. This world is owned by God and he'll return to rule. Laugh like a man who walks away uninjured from a wreck in which his car was totaled. Laugh as if all the people in the world were invited to a picnic and then invite them. He is risen, church. And he reigns. Let's comfort one another with these words and remind us, remind ourselves that this risen Lord will return. Bow with me and let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for our risen Savior who conquered death. Thank you, Father, for the hope of the resurrection that we share because we can say through Jesus, you are his Father and our Father. You are his God and our God. And for that, O oh Lord, we give you glory. Let the truth of the resurrection radiate in our lives and be found in our lips in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church.
strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Majesty, Lord of all, let every throne before him fall. The King of kings, O come adore our God who reigns forevermore, forevermore, all hail, Redeemer, hail, for He has died for me, His praise and glory shall not fail throughout all hail, Redeemer, hail, for He has died for me. His praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. Majesty, Lord of all, let every throne before him fall. The King of kings, O come adore our God who reigns forevermore. Majesty, Lord of all, let every throne before him fall. The King of kings, O come adore our God who reigns forevermore. Praise God who reigns forevermore. You're the God who reigns forevermore. Amen. This morning I would like to conclude our service with a reminder, first of all, that next week we'll be going back to our schedule of an 8.30 worship service, 9.30 Sunday school, followed by 10.45 worship. So this will be our final 8 o'clock service for the time being. And as always with Sunday school, just determine your comfort level. We're still strongly encouraging people to wear masks. Determine your comfort level of being a part. But next week our Sunday school will resume. Also want to remind you that we are not going to be able to offer a nursery during the 8.30 service. So please be aware of that. Uh, there will be no service or child care provided in the 8.30 service. We'll be, of course, at Sunday school and during the 1045 service. Here are the words written at the beginning of Revelation. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will well on account of him, even so. Amen. May God bless you. You are dismissed.